Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Locked In Podcast. My name is Ani. My name is Shree. We have a very exciting episode for you here today. Lots and lots of sports news. The first time since we started this podcast that there's a possibility that sports are coming back or the sports have come back. So lots of news with regards to that. So very excited to talk about that today. Yeah, lucky episode number 13, and we have the most content for you guys in a while. So all good things moving forward. Um, Ani, I know when are you, you want to shout out one of your friends for our last episode. Yeah, so we put out two episodes in the past two weeks. Episode 11 was partially about the Black Lives Matter movement, plus some sports news regarding that. Episode 12, we interviewed Derek Rhodes, who is the director of business strategy for the Miami Heat. He taught us a lot about what the business side of sports is like. And I'd like to shout out Arshi for letting me know that that was an opportunity and for, for just helping us get that guest. We also have a cool upcoming guest, so stay tuned for that and follow our Instagram page, podcast.lockedin, for all the latest updates. All right, so let's get right into it. Let's start with the NBA. So if you've been following basketball and everything going on with the Orlando bubble, that's the regular season extension starting on July 31st, there's a lot of talk about players not wanting to play because of all the the police brutality talks and Black Lives Matter. And, you know, there's there's a lot of people saying that the league coming back is going to take away from the movement happening right now. And, you know, there's players like Kyrie, Dwight Howard, um, uh, Avery Bradley, to name a few. They're all they're all really strong in the belief that, you know, detracting from the movement right now is not something that needs to happen. And the NBA resuming is a part of that. So, Ani, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I definitely think that these players are entitled to their opinions. Uh, I think it depends. We, we saw what Dwight Howard said, that he said it would be great winning my first championships. And we know Dwight Howard has been a great NBA player, future Hall of Famer, went to the championships, uh, sorry, went to the finals with the Orlando Magic, but lost to the, the Kobe-led Lakers. So, of course, he really wants to win. He's on the number one seed. But even he knows that some things are more important than sports. And for players like Kyrie Irving, for Dwight Howard, for Avery Bradley, they simply believe, and, you know, it's perfect, perfectly valid opinion, that they think that they do a better job out in the streets protesting, not locked away in this NBA bubble. But there are other players like LeBron James who believe the opposite, that when the NBA is in this bubble... The entire world's eyes will be on the NBA. It will be the thing that everybody watches on TV. So you can wear t-shirts. You can put stuff on the court. You can have advertisements. You can talk about it in the interviews. There are so many avenues that you can do when everybody's eyes are on you. And because that attention is going to be on the NBA, some players believe that that's the avenue to go to. I think it depends on each individual player. I know some people have talked about how they want to go to protests, and that would be super difficult when you're in this bubble. And we'll talk about the bubble in a bit. We'll basically talk about everything that we've learned about how the NBA bubble is going to work. But specifically talking about this Kyrie situation, the group of players that support Kyrie, I I definitely think that they have their own valid opinion. I do think most of them will end up coming back to play basketball. But I think one thing the NBA, that I've heard the NBA say, and I heard this from um, Shams Charania, he said that the NBA right now... You heard it personally? Uh, yeah, he texted me where we're good friends. Uh, he was in the Pat McAfee show and I was, I was listening to his interview. So he said that uh, the NBA right now is listening and waiting. 
So they're not taking any action yet. They're listening to see this group of players led by Kyrie Irving, what their plan is, what plan of action they want the NBA to take. And whatever that is, as long as it's within reason, the NBA will try and accommodate. The NBA really wants a lot of these players. The NBA wants essentially every single player that's willing and able to come and live inside this bubble and play the rest of the season out. That would be great for the fans. It would be great for the players. It would still keep this competitive spirit of basketball. And I think the NBA is going to try their hardest to accommodate. I do think eventually most of these players are going to end up coming back and playing. Uh, with regards to Kyrie Irving, I don't believe he's coming back. Um, he is injured. And mm-hmm. I don't believe he's coming back to play. So I'm very curious that, you know, he's the vice president of the NBP, NBA PA, uh, the NBA union, essentially. And so he's the vice president. So, of course, he he's trying to talk about that. But also just the fact that he's not playing. So why is he such a vocal advocate of not going to the bubble? He doesn't have to go to the bubble in the first place. if He's not coming back to play. Whereas healthy players like Dwight Howard and Avery Bradley and Carmelo Anthony, I feel like they're the ones. And I know Dwight Howard is being a lot more vocal. They're the ones that should be leading this because they have a vested interest in playing or not. So with Kyrie, I, I don't really mind the opinion he has because it's obviously like a very just and valid cause and it's not something that we can personally speak of in terms of relating to it but oh i'm not saying i don't think he has a valid opinion of course i think he has a valid opinion i just think that he should have let dorit howard be the one to talk instead just because he regardless of whether the nba supports this or not or regardless of what happens he's not going to go into the bubble anyways right so i wasn't yeah i wasn't even like gonna refer to his opinion i was most annoyed with like the reporting happening around Kyrie. you know with all the the misrepresentation of like words he says what the other players have saying even like i know bleacher report on twitter they they've been saying stuff like you know Kyrie like left the nets group chat and like he wants to start his own basketball league which is hilarious to start his own league and there, there needs to be some control regarding the media narrative and the players narrative, you know, Kyrie, obviously he was elected vice president for the players association because people respect his voice, you know, like despite what the media says about him, what game of zone says about him, obviously people care what he thinks. And for him to represent one of the most popular leagues in the world means something. And I know there's a lot of players that do have the same opinion he does. And a lot of these players, whether they play or not, they're passionate about social change and, you know, righting the wrongs that have affected them and their families and their loved ones for a while. So all props to Kyrie, but I want to see him actually do something. You know, um, recently ESPN released a story and there was a lot of a lot of narratives surrounding Maya Moore, you know, a top WNBA player. And she retired in arguably the, the prime of her career, you know, to pursue social change and do all these good things for the community and really educate people on what they weren't aware of. And I don't see him taking that route specifically just because he's he's so young right now. He hasn't really proved anything aside from being LeBron's sidekick from a basketball sense. But with Kyrie, you just don't know, right? Like it wouldn't like I honestly would not be surprised if he retired later this week or if he played one more year, retired the year after. Like it's just He's such a mercurial individual and someone who he's so like people are just confused by him, whether it's the media and other players. But, you know, now he's the VP of a huge players association. And it's it's going to be really interesting to see what transpires with this. But speaking of the bubble there, there have been some changes or some some new 
some new information about the bubble itself regarding, you know, how the the testing for players' health is going to be and what the amenities and the hotel situation is. So let's talk about that a little. Um, Yeah, so I'm going to run through it really quickly. So the NBA is officially restarting on July 31st. If a player does not want to compete in that Orlando bubble, they have to let their team know by June 24th. And if they don't want to compete, if they choose not to compete, there'll be no official consequences. But people are talking about potentially somebody might, someone might get blackballed for the future. Some owners might be like, oh, I don't want that guy on my team anymore. So that's a potential. But officially, there are no consequences for players not wanting to compete starting on June 23rd, which I believe is this Monday. NBA players, coaches, and staff will all get tested for COVID-19. And the teams are set to be in Orlando and start training by July 9th through 11th. Everyone within the bubble will get tested daily, but they're not going to be tested using the invasive nasal swab that if you or I would get tested, we'd get that one, unless it's absolutely necessary because it is very painful. So the test they'll receive is an oral swab. It is less accurate, but the NBA is hoping that because they're testing at least once every single day, they'll, at least if a player doesn't um, test positive the first time, the second time, they'll test positive and they'll be able to catch it. So if a player leaves the bubble, they'll be subject to a 10 to 14 day quarantine. And this is without prior approval. Uh, I think that's going to happen regardless of with or without prior approval, the 10 to 14 day quarantine and the enhanced testing, which is a nasal swab. Uh, but also, if you leave without prior approval, it's a reduction in compensation for games missed. So essentially, they're trying to discourage people from leaving. And players will have the option of wearing a, a wearable ring from this company called Aura that could help with early detection of COVID. It tracks your temperature, heart rate, breathing, and can notify players if they're too close to other people. It costs $299 per ring. Um, and apparently, it detects COVID 90% of the time earlier than a nasal swab would. Uh, and again, if a, if a player tests positive, they'll be isolated. Make sure that they are they have COVID with a second positive test. And they'll be quarantined and recovering until they test negative two times in a row before being allowed to join the team again. So the NBA, I think, is like top tier in terms of entertainment value right now because they're, they're handling the public health side of this, but they're also handling, you know, the home court situation for the league is kind of messed up right now because everything is just happening in Orlando. So there's three hotels that all the teams are staying in. There's the Grand Destino, the Grand Floridian, and the Yacht Club. And in that order, the hotels are rated in terms of their stars. So the Grand Destino, I'm, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, that's a five-star hotel. The Grand Floridian is a four-star hotel, and the Yacht Club is a lesser four-star hotel. So they're all really good hotels, but... The NBA thought that the home court advantage would be given in terms of, you know, player comfort in their hotels, which I think is the Yacht hilarious. Club is not great. Is the Yacht Club is honestly not great. Apparently, yeah, I, I really haven't I haven't been there and I don't know much about it, but I've been to the Yacht Club. I've not been inside, but I've been in their like lobby. And compared to the Grand Destino, the Yacht Club is not as nice as the Grand Destino, for well, sure. You know, that's what you get if you're an eight seed or less. Or sorry, should I say nine seed? Unfortunate for the Blazers, Kings, Pelicans, Suns, Spurs, and Wizards. You know, try harder next year. Um, yeah, and in in the week of July 22nd through the 29th, teams are going to be scrimmaging against teams in the same hotel. So all the lower-seeded teams are going to stay bad. Um, 
each team gets a 35 person traveling party, including the athletic trainer, strength and conditioning coach, equipment manager, and any security personnel they may have. And that also includes each player's private coaches. As for the hotel amenities, you know, this actually sounds like a luxury vacation. I would totally be down to cover this. There's a player's only lounge in which they have gaming, TVs, NBA 2K, you name it, they have it. They have pools and hiking trails, which is insane for a hotel Florida. campus. I have no idea what that is. But but. There's there's no elevation in Florida. The entire state is just a flat state. I don't know how they're going to have trails, but... Well, they made it sound good. They also have barbers, manicurists, pedicures, you know, whatever, dental service, Obamacare, healthcare. I, you, if you name the word, I'm sure this Orlando bubble has it. They have 24-hour VIP concierge. They have daily entertainment, including movie screenings, DJ sets, video games, ping pong, pool, lawn games, baccarat, darts, baklava, whatever you want to name it. And... This is what I found really interesting. So players can attend other games and in-person scouting in the playoffs with no fans, only hearing the coach, players calling out plays on the court. That's going to be insane. I'm really excited to see how that transpires and all the tweets and leaked info about teams. And there's going to be some scandal surrounding this. Yeah. So I think the NBA right now is trying to minimize what's in the bubble player-to-player contact, which I think is hilarious because if they're playing against each other, there's going to be heavy contact. But when they're not playing against each other, they can't be, they have to socially distance. So there's no doubles ping pong, apparently. You can't play with another person, even if they're on the same team as you. So essentially, the only time you're interacting with another person, like in a close setting, is during practice or during a game. So even when they're attending other games, they're going to have to socially distance. I'm very interested to see how this is going to live out. And one thing is that the NBA is not going to be testing for recreational drugs, including marijuana. They're still doing PED testing, uh, steroid mm. testing, but they're not testing for recreational drugs. Uh, Florida is not a state, I believe, where you can legally uh, smoke weed, but I'm very curious to see how how that's going to happen, how players are going to bring it in, which players do it. I'm, I really, I just want to follow every single NBA player's like Instagram stories during this time and see... Oh what's going to happen. Also, golden. there's an anonymous hotline to report violation of rules. So I'm curious to see whether the players themselves will report other players or whether it's going to be fans of other teams. Like the Lakers fans just randomly spam the hotline and just call saying like Kawhi like broke rules and Kawhi ended up benched and then the Clippers lose. I think it's a players and staff only hotline. There's no way they give access to just random fans, you know, because otherwise there's going to be idiots like us calling saying like, you know, oh, LeBron smoked weed before the game. Like LeBron did crack. Like they're, they're not going to allow so, that. So, but the NBA is lucky dude, that Daniel Russell is not coming into the bubble. I was literally about to just say that, dude. If D'Lo was here, oh my god, the meme potential would be off Crazy. the charts. So the, the NBA is going to have two rows uh, during games. Uh, in terms of the bench, the first row is going to be players and coaches. No mask required, but it's recommended that coaches wear masks. The second row is other players and coaches, essentially reserve players and assistant coaches that must wear a mask at all times. Refs do not need to wear a mask, uh, thankfully, because I don't know how they blow a whistle with the mask. Maybe it's like a mask whistle. I don't know, but that they don't have to wear masks. Uh, everyone must, must wear magic bands which give access to the rooms, like a room key security checkpoint, COVID testing. Some players are concerned that they could track you with magic bands. 
and the NBA was like, we'll be tracking you with magic bands, but not really tracking you. In the sense that they can tell when you check in and check out, but there's not like a GPS chip in the magic band, but some people are like, envision of a privacy. But the, I think the most important thing right here is there's an independent medical panel. So it's not NBA team doctors, not NBA league doctors, independent, independent medical panel. And they're going to look at every single player's health history and their physical and give them recommendations on how risky it is for them to be in this bubble and how at risk they are for COVID-19 itself. So there's some players like James Harden, for example, who has asthma. So he might be more at risk than another player. So they're going to look at this and give personalized recommendations to every single person entering this bubble. And also, again, there's some older coaches like Mike D'Antoni, Greg Popovich. The NBA cannot legally force the player, the coaches to not be on court uh, because of essentially work rules that they can't restrict based on age, uh, based on labor, labor rules. But uh, based on what this doctor, these doctors recommend, they might, these coaches might sit further in the stands or might be teleconferencing. I don't know what's going to happen. We will see. But there are these older coaches, so there is that risk. But again, this independent medical panel will really give a lot of players some things. So there are some exceptions. So if a player has a pre-existing medical condition uh, and doesn't want to enter the bubble, then they won't be essentially, they're not going to lose money, I believe, for any games that they're missing. I think they'll get still paid in full, I believe. I'm not sure about that, but that's what I was reading. Yeah, I just wanted to say one thing about Magic Bands. First of all, whoever I think it's a Disney type deal, no you know, Magic Bands, Disney but Magic, also, whatever. I was going to say props to the Orlando Magic for, you know, getting their marketing brand just everywhere in Orlando. They're in the playoffs and everyone has Magic Bands. So, you know, the real home court advantage is for the eight seed in the East, which is I think it's all a truly Disney unprecedented thing. I don't, I don't from think a sports historical perspective. Disney's controlling this entire operation. But I think one thing that's very interesting is I think I think two things. One thing is there's going to be apparently 20 cameras on court uh, during these games, especially. So they have three stadiums. Mm-hmm. They have like a really nice stadium, like an Iad stadium, and like a pretty bad stadium. And so they're pretty. Well, okay. To be to be fair, they're all really, really, really nice. Like I saw the I saw the 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 interior okay. of each yeah, of the arenas. Like, they're really good. I'm talking I'm talking like about the way the league described them. So they have three levels, three tiers of stadiums. So essentially, in the regular season, they'll be playing games at all three. But the kind of okay games are going in the the worst stadium, quote unquote. And then the best stadium is like essentially mm-hmm. the main stadium. That's where most of the playoff games and the finals will be hosted as well. So essentially, as we move further along in the season. Uh, once we get the playoffs, only the two stadiums will be used. And then finally, I think the conference finals and uh, the, the finals itself will use that main stadium. So in that main stadium, they're going to have 20 cameras. So in addition to the staff and the players and the coaches, there's going to be a good amount of people in the stadium itself that are helping run this operation, this, this televised event. But I believe with the media... They're going to do teleconferencing before and after the game. So the press conferences are all going to be teleconferenced mm-hmm. in. But, I mean, one thing that I was really thinking about is, aside from the players, the coaches, and the staff, there's so many people that are in this bubble. You have the people that are part of the concierge service, the the people that are cooking the food, the people that are cleaning the rooms. All of these people are part of this bubble. And I think this bubble is estimated to be around 1,600 people. So if one person in this bubble mm-hmm. happens to, to to go outside and contract COVID and come back inside, because it's a bubble, everyone in this bubble could potentially catch 
COVID-19. So they really have to be strict and stringent on not only the players. I think the players is the easiest part. I think the other employees, the other staff members, uh, the NBA can't control every single aspect of their lives, where they live, what they're doing, unless they're going to be also living in these hotels, right? Like they have families and what if some of the kid, like a kid of like a hotel employee goes to a party and comes back and gives COVID to the to the hotel employee and they give COVID to someone else and whatever, like this bubble has to be really controlled. So I'm very curious to see how the NBA plans on, on controlling that. Yeah, man, that was my biggest concern when this was initially reported as like an idea. Remember, like, I, I don't know when it was like four or five weeks ago, but that... That, that was the big thing for me. Like, you know, the virus is coming in waves and already we're kind of in the midst of this like second wave where people are again becoming more exposed. You know, they they feel like they can relax the restrictions and like go to places and be outside. But the the virus is still very serious and cases are just increasing in every state, even California, where, you know, we were one of the first states to like truly implement strict restrictions. But we... I, I'm not as worried about the players because I think there's team officials that'll, you know, ensure that they're staying in the bubble, they're staying safe, you know, their seasons are on the line and it's just a matter of like public safety for them. But yeah, you're right, like the concierge, the the people cooking the food, the people, you know, delivering things at night, it's it's a whole community and if one person in this small micro community gets infected with the virus, then yeah, exactly. Who knows what's going to happen? So I think the NBA has a... It, it, it's a fine line to walk here. I think they have good outlines in terms of um, player safety, you know, coach safety. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to monitor and hopefully everyone stays safe. Yeah, but I think my main concern with that is not again with the players. I think that there's so many additional people outside of the players and the coaches and the staff. And exactly. these people aren't getting the full NBA treatment. If an NBA player gets COVID and they have to go to the hospital, I'm sure they'll go to the best hospital because they're essentially millionaires and you know, this is NBA star product. The NBA will treat them great. If like an employee of the Grand Destin, for example, gets coronavirus, will the Grand Destin hotel treat them in the same manner as an NBA player? No. So a lot of these people that are working for the Grand Destin, working at the hotels, helping make this bubble a reality, I'm scared that they're at the front lines that they might get COVID. And if an NBA player gets COVID, they're an athlete at the top of their game physically. They might not be at risk at all compared to people who might be at risk or higher risk than NBA players helping the NBA players out. And they're going to get COVID and, you know, have a significantly like lower chance of making it out. So that's what I'm really concerned about. So I really hope the NBA has some plan with regards to that. Hopefully they've ex extended some kind of protection or, or insurance to these these people that are working inside the bubble as well. But again, there's simply too many moving parts here aside from the players. I don't know what these uh, employees are, are going to do. Are they going to live? I think it makes sense NBA-wise for them to live inside the bubble as well. Because this if they... No, no, no. Finish, finish, finish. Yeah, if, if they're going out and like they go to the grocery store after a shift and they catch COVID there, they come back. Super risky. But if everybody's living in the bubble minus like... Like the the groceries are delivered to the bubble is a lot less risky. Yeah, no, you're right about the moving parts, and when you add in an entire racial conflict going on as well, this is this is one of the most volatile situations for a sport. You know, with basketball being one of the more progressive leagues that we've had, and every single player is they're they're strong about you know Black Lives Matter, and 
they all have opinions. They all have their, they've all been against the whole like shut up and dribble notion. And a lot of them are outspoken, been to protests. But when you add that to a national public health crisis and you have that many moving parts with concierge players and staff and, you know, other third party individuals, it just creates an entire, this could potentially become a crisis. Like, obviously it's not being presented that way when they outline, like, you know, we have all this testing, we have magic bands, we have Dora the Explorer, like it, none of that is, none, none of that really highlights how serious a problem this could be. So everyone just needs to be careful, smart, you know, take care of their health first. If someone doesn't want to play because of health reasons, I respect that a hundred percent. That's the smart life move that you, you nobody's worried about basketball right now everybody just needs to you know take care of themselves and if you're Kyrie start a new league man go for it Brian Windhorst brought up a great point actually on the ESPN daily podcast he was saying that a lot of NBA players that engage in sort of family planning um, if they want to have a kid they try and have the kid around the summertime because that's when they have the most time to spend with their families you know, if they make the playoffs or if they make the finals, it ends around now, right? So they have the summer or they have the kid in the summer or even like the late summer, early fall. They can have the kids spend some time with their families before going back to the NBA season, going back to the grind. But now apparently, like I didn't know this, but there's a good amount of NBA players whose significant others are pregnant or are due and are expecting either soon or relatively soon. And these players are going to be in the bubbles. So I'm very curious to see what's going to happen. These players obviously want to go back and witness their son or daughter being born. So are, when they come back, are they, and of course it's an excused absence, but are they going to have to have a quarantine? Are they going to get tested? What's going to happen with that? So there's so many moving parts. And as you said, this could easily become a little mini pandemic inside this bubble itself. That's a terrible worst case scenario, but something we have to consider. I really hope it doesn't. But again, there's a lot of moving parts. A lot to see here, but I think the NBA's honest way is on track right now. A very, very high probability that it starts up again on July 31st. Unlike another sports league, that there's almost I, I believe there's zero percent probability that it's coming back. The MLB, Major League Baseball. Uh, so some background: we've talked about it on previous episodes. The MLB hadn't started the regular season yet, so the MLB made up of the owners and the actual like MLB organization and the MLBPA, which is the players' union, have to negotiate a new contract to play the season. The players' union wanted a 90 to 100 game season minimum. And this is back in like March or April. Uh, they wanted this. And they wanted to get 100% of the salaries for those 90 or 100 games. Whereas the owners, uh, they wanted a season of around 60 to 70 games and they want to appropriate the salaries to 70%, which means for every game the players played, they only receive 70% of what they should have gotten. Again, these negotiations have been going on for a long time. But people are like, oh, it's just the MLB arguing with their players. One week ago, MLB Commissioner Robert Manfred said he was he's like, he guaranteed that baseball would be played. But on Monday night, uh, which was, I think, the, the 13th, the 14th, the 15th, one of those days uh, of June, he said he was not confident the 2020 MLB season would happen. And Manfred is a representative of the owners. So a lot of MLB insiders believe the owners are now at a point where they're okay with not having a season because essentially the MLBPA is insisting now. They basically are saying we need a 70-game season with 100% of our salaries. And the MLB, the owners themselves, are saying, no, we're only giving you guys a 60-game season and 70% salaries. 
So the the owners are essentially saying we're fine with not having a season because they don't lose any money. Whereas a season of 70 games loses them hundreds of millions of dollars. So I don't think it's going to happen. So as of literally yesterday, and I just looked this up, there's a new proposal from Major League Baseball to the Players Union or the Players Association. Sorry. And Manfred met with MLBPA head Tony Clark, and they have they have a new proposal in which there's going to be fully prorated salaries for 2020 and 2021. The playoffs are going to expand from 10 to 16 teams. There is ideally a 60 game season over the course of 70 days. So it's just going to be really short, but a lot of games packed in and it would start around July 19th. So a couple weeks before the NBA season. Um, yeah, again, expanded playoffs and there would be the waiving of any potential grievances, which is interesting. I don't really That's, know what the. So essentially, this is a contract negotiation between an organization, the MLB itself and the MLBPA, a union. Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what you've been seeing in the media right now is both sides, just when they're talking about the other's offer, they're always saying it's a bad faith offer. So essentially what might happen is if the MLB and the MLP, MLBPA sign an agreement, sign a contract saying this is what's going to happen, one of the sides, probably the MLBPA, is going to basically file for a grievance. So what that means is that they're unsatisfied with the contract, that they're forced to take this contract, and this is basically going to go to arbitration. He's going to go to some arbiter, some judge somewhere, and he's going to look at the arguments from both sides. And then based on that, grievances might be like, for example, that the MLBPA, the players, demand $1 billion in lost revenue or lost salaries. And if the person who's arbitrating that arbitration says, I agree with the MLBPA, then the owners have to pay them that $1 billion. So that no grievances clause is essentially trying to save the MLB owners themselves lots of money in case once a contract is signed, the players union decides to file for grievances. And that's why both sides in public, whenever an offer is shared and whenever offers is rejected, they're always saying bad faith, bad faith, because if there is grievances and it does go into arbitration, then they can use that bad faith, which it isn't really bad faith, but they're saying it. It, it colors the judgment of whoever is judging this arbitration. So my issue with this in general is that if the obviously the players association, I know there's going to be something that comes out in which they have an issue with the way that the deal is structured from Major League Baseball. And for arbitration, I'm just going to explain this quickly for in terms of players. So usually arbitration in MLB refers to like a player thinking like, you know, you know, I want more money from a team in terms of a contract and they'll have a dispute with the front office and for a player, for example, like Josh Donaldson with the A's, you know, he was paid a certain amount of money, but he went to arbitration to increase that value and kind of show that, yes, I need more money added to my contract. But this, you're taking an entire group of players, pitting them against all of the officials of Major League Baseball, and MLB's contract is pretty much locking them into whatever guideline that they propose. So I know there's a lot of players right now that are going to have issues with expanded playoffs you know they're going to feel like they they can't let too many teams in i know there's going to be players saying yes fully prorated salary but does this also include all of the minor league assets that our team has so if there's any small wording that goes against what the players want waiving of all potential grievances is going to create huge problems not only for the relationship between the players and the front offices but also Kind of, this is. I think the waiving of potential grievances is more of a publicity move for 
the ML, for the MLB for like front office. You know, they they don't want any bad statements coming out about them from the players later on. So I was listening. To, I was listening to Jeff Passan talk to Pat McAfee on the Pat McAfee show about this, and that's where I got this whole grievances thing. So essentially, what Jeff Passan said was, "This is a risk mitigation strategy by the MLB, by the owners themselves." So let's say, for example, there's a 25 percent chance that. Um, if a grievance is, is filed for $1 billion, that the, the players themselves will get that grievance, will win this like sort of arbitration suit and get that $1 billion, right? Mm-hmm. Then 25% chance of $1 billion, that means that like the overall risk is $250 million, right? Yeah. That's if they don't include a grievance clause. So there's a lot of money that is, is potentially on the line here if they don't include that no grievance clause. Right, even if it's a one percent chance of a billion dollars, that's still a lot of money for the owners to pay up, mm-hmm. right? So this no grievance clause is essentially protecting the owners back, like, and it's just a, like a, a great thing for the owners to put in there because if the players agree, then that means that no matter how badly the players feel about it, they cannot have any legal action. And again, arbitration between a player themselves and the team within a contract is much different than arbitration in this situation. This yeah. arbitration is more of a labor negotiation that you might also see with other unions. For example, like like a car working, like an auto union in like Detroit might have a similar ar- arbitration with like GM or Ford, for example. So it's very similar. It's, a, it's basically a labor negotiation, which is what's going on just in the context of, context of sports. So I think that's a very smart move by the MLB owners, but I think no way are the MLB PA, the players, ever going to accept any deal unless it's exactly what they want that mm-hmm. doesn't have a no grievances clause. And honestly, if I was the MLB owners, I'm so confused because the MLB is already dwindling in popularity. And like when this pandemic started, I myself, and I talked about it on the podcast, I was like, oh, baseball's coming back super soon. I'm so excited to like see it happen. The sport itself is basically socially distancing, right? So... It's not that hard. You don't need to put in all these rules like the NFL or the NBA or NHL. And I saw in spring training, they had mic'd up players. It was super cool. But instead, they still don't have baseball. I feel like basketball might come back sooner, if not at the same time that baseball comes back. And if there is no season, this this genuinely might kill baseball for good. It might drop off interest completely for baseball. So I don't understand why the owners are okay with not having a season. Because, yeah, they don't lose $100 million, but they lose the entire value of their team, which is like a billion dollars. The thing with baseball owners is that they're some of the most ruthless owners in sports. Like They care about their money and very little else. Well, and h- how do they care about their money if their franchise itself is worth nothing, you know? I, I'm talking about like their, their personal money. Like that, I know they have a franchise to deal with, and they have players to pay, and they have you know all, all those lines that they need to provide for but at the end of the day baseball owners value their personal assets the most and their personal assets is their money and if they're financially fine i don't think they care man how many base how many baseball owners do you know who are you know progressive that's not my point my point is if you if your net worth is like 10 billion dollars right and you own a 1 billion dollar baseball team so that's one tenth of your net net worth right Mm -hmm. and an mlb season doesn't happen and the overall value of MLB Major League Baseball goes down by 50% because lots of fans stop watching, right? That then your team is now worth $500 million instead of $1 billion. So your overall net worth drops like like a, a significant amount. Like instead of you losing $100 million extra than you would already lose if there is a season, but you keep your net worth the same. 
That's my point. Like from a financial perspective, I totally get in the short term, you're not losing as much money, of course, guaranteed. But in the long term, you're going to lose so much money in potential revenues and net worth and how much your team is valued. That's what I don't understand. So the, I guess where I was going is like, it, this is more of a concern for like the general managers and like Billy Bean, for example, you know, like these are the people who are directly involved with the team. And if there's no season for them, they're the ones who are like most affected. But if you're an owner, like I, I know you wrote, like we have in our notes here, you mentioned something like in 94, there was a strike and there were no playoffs. And it took essentially two players on steroids to bring the sport back. You know, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, 98, like the single season home run record. But I think the owners know, and I, I don't want to say they're smart, but they, they do know that baseball is not just going to die. It's going to be back next year. And if, if it takes like a little pandemic shortened season, it, it's not their lives or their livelihoods on the line here. And See, they, they know they can just wait for another deal. That's where I disagree with you, because I feel like if you look at MLB before this, Again, its popularity has been declining. It's right now the, the the third of the four major sports leagues. And even then, I think hockey is much more exciting than baseball is. I think hockey might surpass baseball like if things are normal, quote-unquote, in the next five to ten years. Baseball is losing so many fans, especially young kids. Young kids, there's less kids playing baseball now. And even if kids are playing baseball, they don't want to watch baseball because it's genuinely like a pretty boring sport. I watch it because it is boring, because I don't have to invest hundred percent of my time into watching baseball. And if you look at buying an NFL team, buying an NFL team now costs billion dollars. You have to have multiple people together and it costs so much money. But buying a baseball team is cheaper now than it was before. And I'm sure that price will continue to drop if the value of the league itself drops because again, less eyes on the sport, less ad revenue, less ticket sales, all this stuff is just going to start cascading over the next few years especially if sports leagues or like sport leagues themselves start to not have as many players Derek Rhodes talked to us about that um on, on our last episode potentially they, they might only fill half stadiums for the next year right while while a vaccine is still being you know dispersed out to the public starting from 2021 right so mm-hmm. let's say they only have half revenues right then what really matters is TV and the NBA and NFL have so many more people watching per game than MLB. Like Monday Night Baseball has almost no viewers in general. So it's just like literally played at bars and airports. So like my thing is if I'm an owner, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to sign the 70 game deal and get it over with and just make sure there's no grievances and just, you know, because I don't know. I, I genuinely like maybe this is why I'm not a billionaire. And why I'm not an NBA or an MLB owner, but I don't understand from a financial perspective why they would allow for no season to happen. So I have a I have a conspiracy theory here, and just just play along here. We have the NBA, arguably the most popular sport in America, right? Starting up in a month, around the same time when the proposed MLB season would start. You've, you've already said baseball is down in viewership. People like, I mean, okay, I love watching baseball. I love the sport. Like, I like I, baseball too. I really do. I like watching it. It's objectively a boring sport though. To, mo- to a lot of people, it is boring. Like obviously not to us, but a lot of people don't just watch it. It's going to be competing if there's a season with basketball in the playoffs, right? Viewership is already low. 
And now it has to compete with basketball in a time it never competes with basketball, right? So I think owners are going to take that into account. Obviously, I don't know. This is a con- complete conspiracy theory, but they know that's happening. They know basketball is going to go well into September, October, because that's when the finals are going to happen this year. And then, you know, football is going to start. And then a lot of people are excited about football as usual, because football is, along with basketball, probably the most one of the most popular sports in America. So if baseball is delayed until next spring, first of all, that gives all the baseball fans like something to look forward to then. And I think it'll like get them more pumped about the season. Whereas if it's competing with two of the biggest market sports in a time where, you know, it normally doesn't. Well, okay. Yeah. So I guess one of the questions I did have, which I was going to ask to you, which you kind of touched on is if there was no baseball season this year, would you watch next year? Yes. The answer is obviously yes. I would too. Yes. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of people who are like on the edge about baseball would just not care that much. Okay. The, 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 the true fans the true fans would be super excited. Right? Yeah. Exactly. They're going to be super excited for a season next year. They're going to be the first time we see the Astros get completely destroyed by the public. And I think a lot of people want to see that. And the Yankees. And the Yankees. But... Think about it. If there's a season in like a month, like, I, dude, I'm watching basketball. Like, I'm not going to be, I'll, I'll follow baseball, but if all the games on, are go, I'm going to be watching basketball. That's a very interesting point. I did not consider that. Like, no, I would 100% watch basketball too. Yeah. You know, this, this is a great point. You know, yeah, maybe this is in the best interests of the MLB kind of get rid of the fans that don't really care that much about us anyways. The true fans will watch regardless next next season. Uh, it sucks for the sucks for the players, but from it, from a yeah, that's the know. only thing. Like for the players, this is just so unfortunate. But if you're an owner, it's not the end of the world if you don't have a season. Yeah, you know, I, I thought it was, but honestly, maybe it isn't. Dude, I MLB needs to get their stuff right in terms of marketing, player promotion. You know, it's a league in disarray. So one thing that Pat McAfee talked about, and I keep on talking about him, but I watched a show; it was super eye opening. Was he was talking about during the uh, I believe 2010 NFL labor negotiations the the CBA uh, when a, a deal couldn't get done between the NFLPA and the NFL itself Jeff Saturday who used to be the center for the Indianapolis Colts and was super like I think he was like president of the players union him mm-hmm. and Robert Kraft got together with a few other players few other owners and essentially got a deal struck and then they took that to the N- NFLPA and the NFL and were like hey. We we strike this deal just like just that this is what's gonna happen, right? So he was saying, like one thing, which is there are no owners which are willing to like in in the MLB right now, which are willing to strike a deal and take it to the rest of the owners. Every most owners right now kind of don't want to have a season happen. But also on the other side of it, I don't think there's like like right now if you look at the NBA, there is a face. Of the fr- like of, of the league itself, and it's LeBron James, right? Mm-hmm. I like the and the, the MLB. It could it could be argued that Mike Trout is that, right? It's but for Mike sure Trout Mike is Trout. not. No, but Mike Trout is not this like vocal, outspoken player. Like if there was this contract dispute in the M- in the NBA itself, like Kyrie Irving, a very vocal player and a superstar, he'd be the type of person to like like if he really wanted to take this deal and like do the stuff himself, right? Even mm-hmm. LeBron James, but like Mike Trout is like this quiet guy that just likes playing baseball. Like I wouldn't imagine him to shoulder this responsibility and put it on himself to save the league. 
I don't think anybody in the MLB is willing to do that themselves. You see people like Trevor Bauer, like, crapping all over the MLB on Twitter. But are they willing to, like, take the responsibility on themselves? Like, maybe Max Scherzer is the only person. Who knows? But I, I just don't see that the face of the league that's willing to burden the responsibility on themselves and save baseball. And that's what also what, like, like, forget about the owners. There's no player that's, like, rising above the rest and saying, hey, I'm the player's representative. I will be at ESPN every single night making sure we're speaking and getting our demands met. That's just not happening. That, that Exactly. The, you, you nailed it, right? The NBA does a great job not only marketing its number one star, they groom the superstars in the league so well to, like, take the torch. You know, we have Giannis, we have Embiid, we have Luka, we have so many players from so many different backgrounds, like, ready to take on the mantle of, like, the next the next generation, right? And we know these guys are already so vocal. They're going to continue being vocal, and they do a great job representing the sport. But with Major League Baseball, like, after Mike Trout, like, who is it? Aaron Judge, Nolan Arenado, and some Bryce people might Harper. not even recognize the names we're saying. And that's a testament to how poorly they promote their stars and how poorly they let their stars have a voice. I, I really do not like the, the current framework of MLB, and it really needs to change. I think Major League Baseball is the worst run of the four major sports organizations. I think Major League Baseball is worse run than the MLS. Because MLS sucks and the players suck, but I still think they run the like the way their league runs is honestly pretty decent. Like I, I can't believe that it's gonna take like a global pandemic for there to be a league wide in both the AL and the NL DH. I can't believe it's taken that long. Like Dude. nobody wants to watch a pitcher bat unless it's Madison Bumgarner. There's one pitcher I'd want to watch bat, and it's him. Bumgarner, Zach Greinke. I think those are the two names you think of. Yeah, true. Nobody. That's I do it. not. I do not want to watch like Garrett Cole or Justin Verlander. Like on the like, like it's just, it's so stupid. I don't want to watch that, and it's we so uninteresting. We officially have Roger Goodell ranked higher than other commissioners, and that's actually groundbreaking. Which is crazy to me. So I'm just so confused on what the MLB is doing. Again, I will watch. So really, is it doing that bad of a job? I don't know. But I have a pretty low standard for watching things on TV. Um, but we'll, we'll find out what's going to happen in five or ten years. This is something that this isn't something that we can find out immediately. It's going to take some time for the sport to either go back up in popularity or come down. So. These are, these are yeah. macro trends that we're trying to apply in a micro setting, so it's not going to work. But again, we'll see what happens. But I think confirmed right now, the MLB is the worst-run sports league. You know, it, they should let us fix Major League Baseball. They need to let the people who consume the sport from a viewing perspective actually fix it. Definitely. I think there's so many things I could think right off the top of my head to fix MLB. Like, I would mic up the players all the time. I would have oh, a pitch, pitch count thing a batter box count thing, like reduce the time of the game, like reduce the, you know how ridiculous it is that like a player warms up in the bullpen for 15 minutes, then comes out onto the mound and warms up for another five minutes. What is the reason for you to warm up for another five minutes on the mound? You've already warmed up for 15 minutes in the bullpen, dude. Dude, the whole, the whole ritualistic aspect of baseball is so dumb. And they have these, they have these unnecessary rules. I think infield fly is the dumbest rule to exist. How does you, that make any do you sense? Remember, do you remember the the Braves-Cardinals game where Atlanta got screwed? Yes. And then people threw like stuff on the field. That was whole, like 
That was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, that should have been Major League Baseball's call to, you know, take out that rule, maybe. Something that fans don't like. But, you know, Manfred is an idiot. I just, I don't understand why change hasn't happened. And again, this change has permeated all levels throughout baseball. It needs to happen also in college baseball and, like, Little League baseball. But the thing is, kids in Little League are taught to have these stupid tendencies. If mm-hmm. if you force the kids in Little League to just play baseball like normal without having, like, a touch the touch the bat on, like, all four corners or all five corners of the, of the home base and then, like, rub your helmet 15 times before, like, coming up to bat. If you tell these kids to stop doing it, they'll stop doing it. And, like, in 10 years when they become, like, MLB players, they'll stop doing it too. Right, you instill these like, oh, baseball is a very ritualistic sport. There's all these traditions we have to abide by it from such a young age that when they come into the league, they're all going to do that, you know? And people complain. I see a lot of people online complaining about uh, no DHs, or sorry, a DH happening in all the league, right? So no pitchers batting, and they're like, oh, it's a strategic thing, you know, it takes away from the purity of the sport. Bro, I know you're still going to watch. You're not going to not watch if a pitcher isn't batting. Like, mm-hmm. don't tell me that you're, like, going to stop watching baseball, especially MLB, if, like, Garrett Cole, I keep on bringing up his name, but he's going to be, I think, the last pitcher ever to take an at-bat. If Garrett Cole's at-bat, like, I don't think you're going to care, you know? Also, all the unwritten rules in baseball make no sense. Like, there is no reason a bat flip doesn't add entertainment value to the watching experience of a game. And to, right? to kind of discourage the things that make baseball fun is the fundamental root of baseball's problem like there are so many people that want to see players talking to each other they want to hear that like you said the mic'd up aspect is so fun and that kind of personalizes a lot of these athletes and we get to know them better all we see when we see baseball players are people with helmets you know people wearing hats we don't really get to we, we don't get the basketball level exposure that you know nba players get but i think baseball players are the softest professional athletes like ego wise because okay think about like tennis right like if tennis someone hits a great point they're like rafa screams like vamos or like federer screams let's go they're like they'll, they'll fist pump and like basketball you hit a shot you'll like you know we're up the, the crowd the celebration like, yeah the celebrations right in the mlb if you hit like a grand slam bottom of the ninth like you're expected to like stoically walk around the base path and not do any celebrations because you're gonna you know hurt the ego of the other team like, really, what is this? Like, like if you hit a home run, it's an accomplishment. You should celebrate it. Like, if you strike out three batters in a row, you should be, like, like hyped up. Like, just because some guy does a bat flip doesn't mean the next time he comes at the bat, you need to, like, hit him in the head with, like, a 95-mile-per-hour baseball. Like, that's not how baseball should work. There should be celebrations. Like, you shouldn't have such a fragile, fragile ego that, like, if anybody does any celebration, you're pissed off and you want to hit them with the baseball. That's not how baseball should work. It should be fun. Exactly. Like, postseason baseball is what a regular season game in any other league is like. Like, a normal a normal football game. At, okay, I'm even going to say the Chargers Stadium. I'm sure that atmosphere is comparable to some MLB postseason games. And that it's, it's just a systemic problem that baseball has. We're not going to get to it. We're not going to be able to fix it anytime soon. But we just don't like it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty boring sport. But moving on to a sport that is not boring tennis so tennis has a plan to return tennis is a, in a very weird place right now because surprisingly there's a lot of tennis going on for no tennis officially going on so novak Djokovic, um he is the current world number one player 17 grand slams probably the greatest player of all time hate saying that but he lives in serbia and he's essentially had like this 
this tour that he was doing, and he was supposed to do it in Spain, but obviously coronavirus hit in Europe. But still, he's doing this essentially tour event, tournament kind of hybrid thing in Serbia with packed stands, thousands of people in the stands, and uh, professional tennis players, great tennis players, people like uh, Alexander Zverev and Dominic Thiem, uh, team, sorry, not Thiem, team, both who are young superstars rising up, like the next generation, uh, they've come and they've played in this tournament that Djokovic has put on. A lot of people in the tennis world are pretty mad, but you know Federer is out for the rest of the year, so he's not coming, but Nadal hasn't gone to that yet. And then also, the tennis coach of Serena Williams, Patrick Mortoglo, uh, is holding a tournament now, starting, I think, tomorrow, called Ultimus... Te- I think it already started, actually. It's called Ultimus- Ultimate Tennis Showdown. And he has his academy in the south of France, so he's holding it. And again, famous players like Dominic Thiem, um, Tsitsipas, who's, again, both those are super young players, and um, Dustin Brown. Uh, they're all coming and playing there. So there's a lot of tennis going on for a tennis, like the, the women's tour and the men's tour not starting yet. Very, very interesting. But I mean, tennis is objectively a game that can be played socially distantly. So it makes sense. But the, the crowds that Djokovic has been drawing at his tournaments in Serbia have been drawing a lot of spite. But officially, tennis is coming back. Uh, there'll be two more majors, the U.S. Open and the French Open. The U.S. Open is essentially held at the same time. It's on the men's side. It's kind of replicated on the women's side, just different tournament names. So U.S. Open, other than the majors, of course. So U.S. Open held at the same time in late August, early September. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, mid-September. And the ATP tournaments that usually precede um, the U.S. Open are like on the U.S. Open circuit, quote-unquote. It's like they have one in Cincinnati, they have one in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and they have one in Washington, D.C., so the Cincinnati and Winston-Salem ones, those are canceled. Uh, the one in Washington, D.C. is there. And then instead of having the one in Cincinnati, I think that's the Western and Southern Open, they're going to have that in New York City instead. So essentially they're going to have a tournament in Washington, D.C., and then they're going to have a pre-U.S. Open tournament again in New York City. In this, like, base, like They have the U.S. Open like little area, and right next to it they have another tennis center. They're going to hold... Um, like another tennis stadium, or sorry, another tennis tournament, the Western Southern Open there, and they're going to have the U.S. Open, that there's one stupid tournament, like irrelevant tournament, and then they're going to have Madrid and Rome, both clay court tournaments, leading up to the French Open, which is going to happen um, after the U.S. Open. So Yeah, so U.S. Open is actually, it's starting August 31st, like presumptively. Presumably, sorry, not presumptively. And then end of September is when the French Open is going to start. And some some changes for the, the U.S. Open this year are obviously no fans. And for the doubles draws, it's going to be men's and women's reduced to 32 teams. And there's no mixed doubles this year. There's no singles or doubles qualifying tournament. And all the junior and wheelchair tournaments have been canceled. So they're kind of kind of cutting down. But tennis is a go at the moment. Um, as you said, yeah, it's like an easily lot of distance between the players and it's just racket contact. The only real the only real thing is like you're 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 serving. Yeah, you're and, you're touching the ball. But I think yeah. one thing is initially players like Nadal and Djokovic expressed some concern of the US Open specifically and tournaments in the US because the US is doing a horrible job handling the coronavirus pandemic, especially compared to countries in Europe like Spain, like France. So 
a lot of players did not, especially a lot of the European players, those are the best players in the world right now, a lot of them in Europe, don't want to come over to the U.S. and get um, a risk of infecting themselves and sitting out half a tournament or something. So they were very weary, and some still are weary, of the U.S. Open, but supposedly today Djokovic is warming up to the idea of coming to the U.S. Open. I think if Djokovic and Nadal don't come to the U.S. Open, but like one of the first times in a while that somebody that's not Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, Wawrinka, or Murray has won a Grand Slam. So it'd be cool for the sport, but also just I think both of them for sure are going to go to the French Open. I think Nadal will capture his 20th Grand Slam title in Roland Garros this year. But again, super interesting in the tennis world. Again, tennis is kind of back, but not really. So we'll see how it comes back in the U.S. Open in late August. And Nick Nick Curios on Twitter today, uh, and I quote, The ATP is trying to make the U.S. Open go ahead. Selfish with everything going on at the moment. Obviously COVID, but also with the riots. Together we need to overcome these challenges before tennis returns, in my opinion. End quote. Nick Curios and Kyrie need, together, need to get together and form like a little support group. Because I think they both have good intentions, but they're also two of the most, like, straight up confusing people I've ever come across in sports. I love Nick Kyrgios. I think other than Federer, he's my favorite tennis player. He's so real and to the point. He has some of the greatest interviews of all time. Some of the greatest on-court moments of all time. Just a hilarious guy. Uh, Yeah, I, I love Nick Kyrgios. He's always, like, super... He's super real. He doesn't lie about anything. He he also thinks like he thinks Djokovic tries way too hard to be Federer, and he doesn't like Djokovic at all. He also has a winning record against Djokovic. I think he might end his career with a winning record against Djokovic too, which is saying something. But I, I think he's hilarious. I don't think he likes anybody except players in other sports because he's always posting pictures with like his homies in the NBA, like NFL. He hates everyone in tennis, umpires. Well, okay. No, he respects most players like he played doubles with like Shapovalov and like he's played doubles with the people so like he respects people like to a certain extent just people that try way too hard aka Djokovic uh I don't think he respects him at all which again it's a point that I basically agree with but that's uh me hitting Djokovic because he's better than Federer and Nadal but moving on to other news there is some player related news in the NFL and then after that we're going to talk about what uh, Dr. Fauci said about the NFL returning. But uh, Jamal Adams had a trade request today that basically blew up Twitter for like two hours and it went away. Lots of memes about that. Yeah, Jamal Adams pretty much had a trade list of, of like teams he was comfortable being traded to and he only listed the contenders. Like there were no, there were no Raiders, there were no Chargers, there was nothing. It was just Niners, Seahawks, Chiefs, Eagles, Cowboys. There were a couple other teams I'm blanking right now, but it was pretty much any team that had like a semi-reasonable, you could say they could make the Super Bowl. Well, surprisingly, he chose the Texans. Uh, that was, you're right, Ravens, Cowboys, Chiefs, Eagles, 49ers, Seahawks, and then the Texans, which I'm surprised why he'd willingly want to, to be a part of a team that has Bill O'Brien as a head coach and a GM. No idea. I, so I, I was thinking about the Hopkins trade. Don't tell don't, me you think the Hopkins trade is actually not that bad of a trade. Because if you do, no, like... No, no, no. The, so the, the Hopkins trade itself, like, if you look at it in a vacuum, it's a bad trade for the Texans, right? They traded away a peak receiver in the prime of his career for... For David Johnson and David nobody Johnson, else. Right? I was listening to something the other day, and people were saying Hopkins got kind of too reliant on... Or, sorry, 
Deshaun Watson got too reliant on Hopkins as the number one target, right? No, no, no. Hear me out. Hear me out before you just completely obliterate this, right? Obviously, when you have a number one receiver, you're looking to get him the ball, right? Like, he is your guy. And the other threats on your team are, you know, like, if you're a cornerback, you can kind of, you kind of expect throws to your number one receiver. But now with with Watson really having to use, like, his full arsenal to get the ball to every single receiver on his team, and there, it's not as one-dimensional an offense, I think this creates more opportunities for players like Will Fuller, you know, to, to shine as as threats on the Texans and not just be overlooked in pass coverage. I think Watson is going to do a better job. He's going to have more passing yards, more touchdowns. People are really going to start talking about him as like a top two MVP candidate. And I don't, I, I don't like the trade, but I'm not as sour on it anymore. I think that's the stupidest logic I've ever heard for defending a trade, because basically what you're saying is, oh, we're trading away our best offensive player minus our quarterback because our quarterback got too reliant on him because he's such a good player. No, and no, now, I'm not saying I'm not saying that's the reason why they traded him. Like they, they okay, obviously fine. didn't want to pay isn't. him. Like they obviously just did not want to pay him. Right? Even if like that's the reason they didn't trade him. You, you only have one receiver. Okay. Even okay. With Will Fuller partially healthy, they had one and a half receivers. Now they have half a receiver. Like He's the only person on the Texans that can catch the ball right now with DeAndre Hopkins gone. So, like, Deshaun Watson has to not only throw to his number one receiver, but his number one receiver, who's Will Fuller, who is also usually injured, is better than half the players, or not half the players, every other receiver on the Texans. The Texans' receiving core right now is, like, literally one of the worst in the league. So, I don't understand, like, how that logic would make any sense. Because what bothered what. What bothered me about the Texans' offense last year is that so many of Hopkins' catches were just straight-up jump balls, right? Like, Watson would just throw it in the direction. And because he has DeAndre Hopkins, he just makes the play because he's the number one receiver. But I think that was because the Texans had a terrible offensive line. And whenever that, that, that sort of throw happened, it was essentially Deshaun Watson scrambling out of the pocket and just throwing it to Hopkins because he knew that he could win the one-on-one ball. But if you look at design pass plays, he did spread the ball out a lot, especially down the field. Like, when Hopkins beat his guy, then of course he'd throw to him, right? But there was a lot of design plays that I'm sure were supposed to go to, like, Will Fuller or, like, the tight ends or the running back leaking out. But just their offensive line was just so garbage that Deshaun Watson was just scrambling in the pocket the entire time and just chalked it to, uh, to uh, DeAndre Hopkins just because he knew, like, there's a better chance of him catching the ball than, like, any of the other trash receivers on and off. Like, it's, on it's just that, like... I don't remember a team being Super Bowl level successful or even like conference championship level successful with like that number one receiver type format. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just trying to think the Eagles recently, you know, they they spread their targets. Well, Tom Brady, every year he's in the Super Bowl, he has no real like number one receiver. And that year he had or the years he had Randy Moss, they... Like they didn't do, they didn't, they didn't win the Super Bowl, and that's the standard we have for the Patriots. Obviously, I'm going to say, but I'm, I don't, I don't know. Like as of late, like Carolina didn't have what about a number the, one uh, receiver, the Chiefs and Tyreek Hill. I don't think he was a number one receiver. What? 
Tyreek Hill's not like a number one receiver. He he's not a traditional number one receiver. But that's the, what I'm saying. Like DeAndre no, no, Hopkins but, is the no. ultimate traditional number one receiver. No, no, but, the only okay. instance that worked was like no, no, the Falcons. No, the, the only reason with I'm Julio. saying the only reason I'm saying Hill is not the traditional number one receiver is because of his height. But in terms of everything else, he is the number one receiver on the Chiefs. Like he is the primary target on like most passing plays the Chiefs run. Like just like Julio, just like DeAndre, he's the number one receiver. He's not your traditional tall like built like jump ball type number one receiver, but he is the number one receiver and they won. And if you watch the Super Bowl, they passed a hell of a lot of times to Tyreek Hill. Or they tried to pass a hell of a hell of a hell of a lot lots of times to Tyreek Hill. But the Chiefs didn't win the Super Bowl because of Tyreek Hill. Like what I'm saying is like having a number one receiver is fine and it's great. I just think in the Texans case it wasn't really like the trade is bad, but it's not I guess I I think I criticized the it trade too would much be earlier. The trade would be good if the Texans made improvements using the trade to to help their team out, right? That's my issue with it. Is if the, if the Texans traded away DeAndre Hopkins but got like three picks in the first round or second round, like the first two rounds of the drafts, like this year or next year, right? Or like they got like a really good like young wide receiver like somehow out of it. Or they got a good, solid offensive lineman. You know, they fixed the holes they really needed. And they mm-hmm. got some capital to trade away and essentially build up their roster. Then I'll be fine with it. But based on the trade and the draft, the Texans barely addressed their offensive line problem. I still don't think it's a great offensive line. They addressed it, but I don't think it's great. But they did not address the receiving core at all, right? So if you trade away your best player, one of the best players in the league, you should expect to get something out of it that could help you make your team better. But the Texans didn't do that. That's why I think it's objectively a terrible trade. Like, I see what you're saying, and it makes sense. But the Texans didn't do a good job of, like, trying to execute the plan that you wanted them to execute. Like, uh, like if they wanted to do what you want them to do, then they trade away DeAndre Hopkins for, like, two first-round picks. And then they get, like, a, an offensive lineman and a really good wide receiver. So, so you know, if, these are, like if these are your three receivers, and I'm, I'm, it's Will Fuller, Brandon Cooks, who they recently got, and Kenny Stills. I don't think that's a bad like receiving core. Okay, Brandon Cooks is definitely out of his prime. He's not that great anymore, as we saw last season. He's not like he's barely like he he's not that fast anymore. His and, like, only issue is injuries. Like if no, he stays healthy, he's good. No, but he's also pretty old. I think he's 30, 32 years old right now. And he's like thirty. Dude, what do you mean? He's twenty six. Oh really? Okay, cool. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Then good good for the Texans. But okay, still okay. Brandon Cooks is not as good as he was a year ago, not as good as he was two years ago, right? Last season was injuries. Like, two years ago with the Rams, he was like 1,200 yards. Crazy, right? But I think he's getting bogged down in injuries. Um, Will Fuller, again, bogged down in injuries. Kenny Stills had some injuries in the past. Isn't the same player he was when he was in Miami. So, okay, again, these aren't terrible receivers, but I still don't think it's a top 15 receiving core right now, based just based on health. I, I feel like Deshaun Watson is going to become a better quarterback this year. Like, by a mile compared to what he was last year. And last year, he was great. I just think he's going to become more more complete a quarterback this year. I just wish they would have gotten better pieces out of it. Like, Yeah, we all wish that. We all wish they did something different in that trade. But No, but you know what I'm saying, right? You had one of the best players in the NFL, and you traded him away for freaking, like, David Johnson? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. I, again, I still don't think their receiving core is great, especially compared to the Chargers. Uh, but 
we will we will see how they do. I still think the Texans go like ten and six, eleven and five, like put a scare into someone in the playoffs. And they'll choke in the first round like usual. <sighs> okay, speaking of other quarterbacks who I think are incredible, Lamar Jackson is on the new Madden the Madden NFL cover. And I think the curse is broken, man. Last year Mahomes, this year Lamar. Like there's no more Madden curse, right? Well, I don't think there's a Madden curse anymore, but that doesn't mean I think that Lamar Jackson is going to win like the Super Bowl. Like I think it's might it's going to be hard for him to because the AFC is pretty stacked. But I think like he, like the curse is broken for sure. If the Ravens get Jamal Adams, could they go 16 and 0? Maybe. I think again, really I think like last year some of the Ravens games were really like really close and like I think they lost a few of them just like like very unluckily. I think like yeah. Lamar Jackson is going to improve a lot as a player this year. Uh, obviously having again Mark Ingram coming back and having some great players. They had a great draft class. J.K. Dobbins will add a lot of explosiveness, lateral quickness to the offense. They got a great receiver in Devin Duvernay. They got some great defensive players, Patrick Queen. So you know. I think they have a good chance of being the number one seed in the AFC, besting out the Chiefs. My issue is it comes to the playoffs. I think the Ravens, like last season, will be great in the regular season. When it comes to the playoffs, do they have what it takes? So, Lamar needs to break out in the playoffs this year. I know first season he was kind of just thrust into that role. He had to do what he could. Second season he broke out in his MVP campaign, but Mike Rabel and the Titans put kind of a damper on that man but. the first year he lost to a db charger team which then got destroyed by the patriots so yeah like, i don't know i was just very confused i mean granted it was his first year in the league he only no, started he was, a few he games he was in flacco's offense like he, yeah. he played the system that joe flacco played which is but they did they did different. beat the chargers if you remember that uh, just says a lot about the chargers they no, they beat the Chargers in the regular season. Yeah, remember we were at some of I think it was my brother's Eagle Eagle Scout Court of Honor. Oh, and we were watching. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember. it was so depressing. Uh, and then because the Chargers were up and obviously lost. But yeah, I think we just ate food and I was like, I was just talking shit. But Cl- classic Chargers. But anyways, uh, they lost to them in the regular season. The Chargers lost to the Ravens, but then the Chargers did some ADB stuff and magically won. But again, that was you know a different team. Hopefully, I think. Lamar Jackson mm-hmm. has improved drastically. Um, but speaking of quarterbacks that can run, and by the way, these have been great transitions so far. We need to we uh, need to work on these. We always do the speaking of. I mean, let us know if you have any transition ideas or you know how you how you move from point to point when talking. Well, a player that moves from point to point while talking, Colin Kaepernick, oh uh, is on the God. workout list for several teams, including my uh, San Diego slash Los Angeles Chargers. Um, so people are talking. And people, a lot of people are saying that he could potentially be signed by the Chargers. I will tell you right now as a Chargers fan, that is not happening. We have Tyrod Taylor, uh, we have Justin Herbert, and we also have Easton Stick, who are all essentially the same type of player, like a dual threat type deal. So I, there's no reason why we should have, like if we didn't sign Cam Newton, there's no reason why we're signing Colin Kaepernick. Because I think objectively, Cam Newton is a better quarterback than Colin Kaepernick. But we're, we're talking purely football. Like, I don't want anyone to, like, say, oh, you know, Cap needs a spot because of what he's done for the league. Great. Like, 
He is an incredible man. He's an activist and he's done so much for Black Lives Matter and everything. But when we're talking about teams giving him a shot to sign him, I want people to solely think about his football skill. Like, can he be a backup? And he should be in the league. He should have been in the league the last three years. Like, there's no excuse for Cap being in the league. Or there's no excuse for Cap not being in the league when you have Nathan Peterman as a quarterback in the league. And I think Gardner Minshew... Um, hey, Minshew's Mike Glennon. Minshew's not Mike bad. Glennon. Okay, yeah, Mike Glennon. There's so many bad quarterbacks. So, okay, again, I think Colin Kaepernick will get signed with the team. I think, sadly, he should have gotten, not sadly, but like I think he should have gotten signed with the team a while ago. I think it sucks that he didn't. And obviously, he's not as good now physically in terms of like his age as he was three years ago, two years ago, even last year. So he's not going to be the same player he was. But I think. He still deserves to get signed with the team because there are definitely worse quarterbacks than him. Just where he's getting signed to, again, I do not believe it's the Chargers because of the current roster we have. Uh, we already have Tyrod Taylor. I don't think we'd give up Tyrod Taylor to sign Colin Kaepernick. It just doesn't make sense. Um, but there are some other teams potentially that, that could sign Colin Kaepernick, so I'm excited to see where he goes. But any team that signs Colin Kaepernick, why won't why wouldn't they sign Cam Newton? Because it's you know it's because Cam is a Cam is it money or is it injuries it's, it's or what money? Is... Cam is still technically in like the the quote unquote prime of his career, and he has I, he has a lot to give, man. I, I've been seeing workouts and dude, he's he's such a physical specimen that there's no reason he shouldn't be starting. It's just a matter of which team wants to take that chance and give up their current system to completely change to a dual threat QB. And initially. I thought San Diego was a perfect spot for him, man. Like no lie, with the with the athletic so receiving sad. core and you know Herbert not being ready to start. I thought I talked about it on the podcast. I said we should have signed him. We should have gotten someone in in the, in the number six pick that was a, a great defensive player, uh, but it didn't happen sadly. Yeah, I, any, any team looking on on cap needs to be looking at Cam too, and. I know it might be a big... Th- this kind of feels like Melo coming back in the league, you know? Like, where he, he really thought he was a starter and then had to take that reserve role and ultimately ended up being a starter again with Portland because of injuries. But Cam Cam has a spot in the league waiting for him. It's just a matter of, you know, egos and, and financials and just a whole bunch of things. And he's one of the most iconic figures of the NFL in the last decade. And he's kind of revolutionized the sport in terms of running quarterbacks or he revolutionized it again after Mike Vick, but someone's got to sign him. Definitely. So we'll, we'll see what happens there, but with regards to if the NFL comes back or not, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, um, director of the national Institute of allergy and infectious disease diseases said that the football season may not happen unless players are placed in a bubble. Which I think was something that we all were, were were thinking based on how other sports are coming back, but especially with a potential quote unquote second wave, or even if not that, the fact that the the flu season could also be be happening. I don't think that the NFL could operate as a regular sports leagues where 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 people are just living in the public. I think it has to be in a bubble situation. This is obviously something that Anthony Fauci said that that we're just talking about briefly right now. There's. We we don't want to go into another hour long discussion on what the NFL bubble could look like, and hopefully we'll see how the NBA bubble, the tennis bubble, the MLB bubble, 
um, the Premier League bubble, the Bundesliga bubble, all these little bubbles. We'll see how they work and what the NFL decides to institute. But I think the fact that people are so excited for the NFL in the fall, we'll see if the NFL is going to do what the NBA is doing because the NBA is by far, you know, the best sports league in the in, in North America right now. And they did a great job with trying to prioritize player safety. And we'll see if the NFL who has, or NFL teams who have much bigger player rosters and much larger organizations themselves for game day operations, a lot more than just five on five on the basketball court, right? So we'll see what they think of. If they already have a plan in place, we'll see what happens. You know what I was considering about this NFL bubble? I'm not going to go too much in depth on it, but there's there's like 50 man rosters for NFL teams, right? And what, 30 teams? So 32. 32 teams, right? 32 so, teams, 52 man rosters. So. It's like 1,600 people. I, I don't Just know. Just players. I don't, like, how is. And, and people don't realize, like, NFL players don't travel, like, commercial, right? When they fly, it's their own plane and their own pilot. And it's very contained to, like, them. So, like, I, I'm just throwing this out there. Like, what is the issue with, instead of having NFL players quarantine in a bubble, have those pilots, like, you know, like, have a track on them as to, like, they can't go to to places other than their house and and work right like if they're flying the team to these different arenas like across the united states like is that a valid proposition well it has to be everybody because in addition to the pilots there are equipment managers that are essential to making the game possible the referees they're ball boys they're the people that hold the the the, the yard lines like the 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 first down markers and stuff there's all these people in the NFL. There's like athletic trainers, so many people per game. And this is just excluding fans. And some people are saying the NFL might have fans in, right? So mm-hmm. if you exclude that per per game that's played, you have like 104 players on like the field slash on the sidelines, plus like 20 members of the coaching staff. So that's 40. So like 144 players like i think around 200 to 300 people are involved in making a game that's like a minimum number let's say the minimum is 200 right yeah all 200 of those people have to vow that like once the game is over they go back to their house and like they can't leave their house and they can't like go out and eat at a restaurant they can't go to a bar they can't go to a club and everybody that's living with them has to do the same thing because otherwise like there's so much interaction that happens within the nfl that like it's not just about like the players going to the stadium practicing then you know getting on the plane and you know going to another stadium to play a game right like these players want to live their lives too so what happens if jamal adams not saying that he is but actually no what happens if ezekiel elliott and dak prescott decide to throw more parties like they were in dallas and they get infected again or you know dak prescott gets infected this time and passes it on to the players that he's playing with and also the players on the other team and they, they pass it on like there has to be a bubble it makes no sense if there's not a bubble well those two got to make sure the strippers quarantine too you know, whatever exactly. party they're throwing. I know Zeke loves his strippers, but yeah, I guess, I don't know. The concept of a bubble for the NFL just seems kind of dumb when you have that many people responsible for games and having that many games in one area, just considering the size of a football field and, you know, the dimensions of arenas and stuff, it just seems kind of whack. But, you know, the NFL usually figures its stuff out and they've been doing a good job in this quarantine of, you know, changing changing their, their image in general. So, well, I have hope. But... Yeah, let's 
let's move on to something ani let's let's close with this i know you have you have a decent amount to talk about this but go over kind of the eyes of texas and you know ut's football players like asking for change and the the ramifications this really has for college football yeah so i obviously graduated from the university of texas at austin as some of you may know as all of you now should know um so the uh, the university of texas at austin is a very old school we have lots of football traditions and one of the traditions is singing our school fight song the eyes of texas the eyes of texas is our school fight song it um is in the theme or the tune of i've been working on the railroad and we sing it before and after every single game whether we win or whether we lose something with the entire stadium basketball arena whatever whatever it is we sing it all the time it's like our, our school fight song uh, but the history behind it is is not very simple and it's not very nice so uh one of the the old um presidents of the university used to really like robert e lee and robert e lee who obviously was a confederate general was the leader of the confederacy had this this phrase the saying the eyes of the south are upon you so this president of ut uh he he echoed this saying around ut he always just say the eyes of the south are upon you so the students wanted to mimic this this university president so what they did was they made a new phrase and a new saying, sort of parody of that, where the eyes of Texas are upon you. And some, some students in this local, or not local, in this, in this spirit group, essentially a spirit group at UT is kind of like a frat, but it's not. Um, it's like an in-between between a frat. So there's the spirit group called the Texas Cowboys, and uh, they're responsible on game day for, smiring, for firing Smokey the Cannon uh, whenever somebody scores a touchdown. Or there's halftime, or whenever basically like any a big event happens at a football game, a cannon called Smokey is fired, and Texas Cowboys, one of their responsibilities is doing that. They're also like a quote-unquote philanthropic organization, but they've been disbanded because they've had some issues. Don't want to get into that right now, but historically, um, they used to put on these minstrel shows, and minstrel shows are shows where, among other things, uh, students used to dress up in blackface. So the song was debuted at one of these minstrel shows. And was sung by people in blackface at these minstrel shows. So that's how the origin of the song came to be. So lots of student athletes right now at the University of Texas, especially black student athletes, they put out a statement last week that highlighted that essentially the student athletes are to serve as ambassadors for the student body and the university. And it's their job to push for change that they believe can benefit the entire UT community. So given the racial injustices that are being highlighted across the country, and given the majority of football players are black and therefore are disproportionately affected by these changes, uh, the student athletes have asked that the University of Texas take a stand against racism and make it more comfortable for black players. So essentially, their demands include renaming some buildings on campus that are named for old racist presidents or um, for a Civil War general, like a building and also a fountain called Littlefield. He was a, a Civil War general on the Confederacy, so not like a good guy. Um, adding more diverse statues. We had a, a statue of Jefferson Davis that was removed in 2015. I don't know why we had a statue of Jefferson, of Jefferson Davis, but they want more diverse statues made by people of color. Uh, modules for incoming freshmen to discuss racism on campus. Because again, this is Texas. This is the South. There is a history of racism at UT. It wasn't a segregated school until the 50s. So, or it was a segregated school until the 50s, sorry. And then some outreach programs to Houston and Dallas. More diversity in the Athletics Hall of Fame, including a permanent black athletes exhibit, 
donating 0.5% of athletic revenue to Black Lives Matter organizations. And all that seems perfectly fine to most people, but they want the student athletes want to get rid of, or sorry, before that, they want to also name part of our stadium for Julius Whittier, uh, Whittier the first black football player at UT. And, you know, all of that sounds fine, and most people agree with almost all of that. But the student athletes also want to get rid of the Eyes of Texas as a school song. They want to write a more, um, or a more inclusive, like, new school fight song. And they also want to stop forcing athletes to sing songs during athletic events. Because before games and after games, student athletes are forced to sing the song. And, I, you know, these student athletes don't want to sing this song. So based on the history that I did a poor job of explaining... Uh, but based on that history and based on what the student athletes think, there's a lot of controversy going on right now with regards to the eyes of Texas and potentially that being removed as UT's fight song. You know, it's good that a school as large and with such a wide reach as UT is kind of doing this and that the athletes are making people aware of the, the historical significance of what people normally would just think is like, oh, a school fight song, like, you don't really need to research much about that, but it's good that there's awareness on that. I know in Oklahoma State, you know, their their coach... Wait, what up? I just wanted to say, uh, I forgot to say, but uh, th- essentially the black student athletes are saying that if all these like demands aren't met, then what they're going to do is they're not going to um, represent the school and in, in a positive manner and in, in the sense that they're not going to go to booster events and not going to go to recruiting events and try and recruit other players to the school. They're still going to play games and do practice, but they're not going to go to booster events and they're not going to recruit. So that's sort of their thing of they believe they're representatives for the school. So if the school doesn't represent them then they're not going to represent the school. So yeah, I just want to say that because I don't think I did. Yeah, yeah, and again, that that also ties into like a lot of these athletes are saying like we're we're a University of Texas athlete for two years, but we're a black man first and for the rest of our lives, and that really matters. And it's good that UT is being really public about this, and that their athletes are being really public about this. And this is happening in other colleges too. You know, like Oklahoma State coach Mike Gundy has come under fire for a lot of the stuff he's been saying, and he was pulled up by their their star running back Chuba Hubbard, and. It's good that there's a lot of this discourse between the coaches and the players where in the past it just hasn't happened. And there's a lot of history of of racism and improper treatment towards players. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot of history in the South, especially, like you said, with a lot of these Confederate generals and statues glorifying some of their, I'm not even going to say achievements, but the, the things they did, you know, so... It's really great that a lot of this is coming to light now. I'm surprised it took this long. And I don't know whether it's partially because of cancel culture or partially because of, you know, people finally realizing this is too much. Things need to change. But it's all a, a perfect storm and it's happening in sports. It's happening everywhere else now. And, you know, it's good. It's, it's just all good. Yeah, I'm sure across the South there will be more schools that, that have similar things that UT is going through. Uh, I think UT's case, specifically with the fight song, the fight song itself isn't like overtly racist, but it has lots of racist undertones and a racist history. I'm sure there are other fight songs for other schools that are overtly racist. This is the South. You know, it is what it is. So I'm sure that across the schools in the SEC and ACC and maybe one Big Ten school and some Big 12 schools, uh, 
stuff will change. This is all great. I'm really, really happy stuff is changing. I'm happy that most of the fan base has at least embraced what the student athletes are saying and are happy. And the university itself is embracing what the student athletes are saying. And, you know, it's it's a huge school. There are so many creative people on campus. Uh, I'm sure that, like, somebody could write a new fight song super quickly and it would get adopted. And I think a fight song is supposed to unite people. And the fight song excludes people, especially the athletes, the people that are representing us on the field, then why should we have this other fight song? So I definitely agree with the student athletes. I'm really surprised that, you know, naming a part of the stadium for Julius Whittier, the first black player, uh, football player at UT, I'm surprised that hasn't happened earlier. Um, a lot of these buildings that are named for super racist people, I'm surprised those haven't, those haven't been changed. So I think there's a lot of racist history at UT, but hopefully stuff can change. I really encourage you guys to go to the website racialgeographytour.org. Uh, Dr. Edmund Gordon, who is a professor at UT, he's put together this this racial geography tour where you can go around the UT campus and essentially see uh, the, the past and, and see what the, the racial history of UT is like. So I've gotten a lot of the information about the fight song and about the Texas Cowboys from that tour. So I really encourage you guys to go. Uh, check that out. It's really eye-opening. Even if, even if you guys didn't go to UT, like this is just one example of a big college campus. There's also so many colleges within Texas that are also as old, but also across the South that I'm sure have similar problems. So we'll see what happens. Cool. Well, yeah, that's good to know. And coming from firsthand from the university himself. So thanks for sharing that. And I think that's it. Thank you guys for, thank you guys for listening. You know, this was a pretty dense episode in terms of news we finally have finally have some stuff to talk about so we're more excited about sports coming back and kind of covering the actual game aspects instead of going over the the you know the behind the scenes stuff so we're looking forward to that be sure to follow us on instagram on uh spotify apple music wherever you get your your podcasts from um stay tuned we have some some fun guests coming up we have a lot of stuff on the horizon, new content. So, yeah. Yeah, guys, just stay safe. Wash your hands. Wash your hands, people. Peace. I'm telling y'all, man, the sports knowledge is too extensive.